everybody, to another episode of Overdue Rentals, the podcast where we talk about films that never really got enough attention when they first came out, or they could have been big blockbusters that everybody saw, but nobody talks about anymore, and we don't know why. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Buns Mike Reyes, and I guess you could call me magical, you could call us magical today, because Matthew, what film are we talking about today, pray tell? Well, we're going to be joined by the incredible, unmatched legend, Richard E. Grant. Yes! Who's going to be talking to us about his new film, Everybody's Talking About Jamie, which is going to be premiering in September on Amazon Prime. September 17th, if I remember September 17th, correct. And we're also going to talk to him. Everybody's probably thinking, oh, here we go, talking about With Nail and I. He's like, no. It's a, or it's, Spice World. It's enough of a cult classic at this point. Everybody talks about it. We're going to be talking about, depending on where you live, either the 1989 or the 1991 Warlock. Ah, <sighs> uh, yes, folks. Uh, and I believe this was a Matthew pick, and this was my first time watching it, uh, despite the fact that I remember the poster art very well, and I remember the fact that the film had Julian Sands in it. And oh, yep. Julian Sands. Well, for those for those who've never who don't know anything about either of these films, everybody talking about Jamie is a musical that is based off of a West End play that was based off of a BBC documentary about a 16-year-old boy who knows that what he wants to do is basically be a drag queen and kind of the fight for that coming out of him in preparation for his uh, high school prom. Well, I shouldn't say high school prom because they don't really have they wouldn't call it high school uh, <laughs> in England. That's something that that's something that uh that I was wondering about too because I remember like I had a quick detour. Um, I had a little bit of cultural background in this because I was pen pals with an English girl back in high school, and I had mentioned to her the concept of prom, and she's like, "Well, we don't really have that over here." Correct. I'm wondering if it's something that maybe they maybe they adopted it later on or maybe well, this was just a flourish for the show i know they definitely don't have it in scotland because that was my big thing with the rock when sean connery you know goes like we know just go home and fuck the palm queen it's like you know no because they don't have promise scott i know that i know that sean so they told you to say that and you said it even though it doesn't mean you don't know what promise anyway Hey, he's retired that, James Bond. He knows American culture. But that, that, is, that is what the film was about. And then Warlock was, is an early David Toohey script that uh, is about a, a evil witch slash warlock who, while being persecuted, escapes into the future because the 16th, 16th century, I should say, witch warlock, escapes into the future, into the 90s, followed by the priest who's meant to uh, was it not a priest? He's an abbot, right? He's a witch hunter. Oh, he's, sorry, witch hunter, who's th- who's there to hunt them down? Who's played by Richard E. Grant? So Richard E. Grant is the witch hunter. Julian Sands is the witch, and that's that's the, that's the basic premise of that movie. And that's something I saw when I was also again really young when it kind of first came out. And you know, like that, I loved that when I was a kid. It was I thought it was the thing is, and we'll 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 get into it later, but. David Tui, again, for people who don't know David Tui, you know, he's most more, more popular because he created stuff like Pitch Black. Um, and um, I, 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 always, I always loved Arrival, the, the, the one, oh, the, the, the Charlie do Sheen we have one. That on the list? Do we have the Arrival on the list? It is, it is on the list. It is on the list. Okay, good, because we got to talk about that. But 
I, what I love about David, and also like, he, I, I can't remember what it's called. It got changed. When it first came out, it was a TV movie. It was called Disaster in Time. But it was, it was called, it's called something different now. It's like Time something. And it was with Jeff Daniels. And it's the idea, it was, it's been done before, but it was brilliant. And it's based on a book, I believe. But it's the idea of time travelers who show up to watch natural disasters. So they, they, they know that something's about to befall this place. And they're there like kind of on vacation to watch these horrible things happen in human history. And I love that. But that's the thing. Yeah, that's what they changed the name title Which to. But, this is another one I've seen a trailer for on, a, on my VHS reels. So, Spoiler. I'm going to do the spoiler for the ending of Warlock now. So close your ears if you haven't watched it yet. But it's on Amazon Prime as of this writing, or as of this, this recording. I, I think even whether you like David Tui movies or not, he's very clever. It's not about twists. I mean, yes, there are some movies that have twists, like um, The, the Arrival. Was it The Getaway? What's that? Is that The Getaway? Is that the name of the movie? The one with uh, Mila, Mila Jokovic and Steven uh, Zdan? A Perfect Getaway? Perfect Getaway. The Perfect Getaway. That's a twist. But David Tui's always very clever. And the ending of this in the Salt Flats, I thought it was so clever when I was a kid. I thought it was the most clever thing in the entire world. That's a beautiful button on this whole thing. It's yeah, Exactly. But enough of us blabbing. I think it's time that we have Richard come join us for a discussion. Uh, it's been long time. Like, even if we may not have had him on the list, it has been long overdue for him to be on Overdue Rentals. So please, ladies and gentlemen, give a great, big, colorful welcome to Richard E. Grant. Thank you so much for joining us here. Thank you very much for having me, Matthew Mike. I'm sorry, just Richard E. Grant, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Let's just drink it in. Very wonderful taste profile uh, of cultivated acting and, and, and gamesmanship and, of course, lovely glasses. You know, I, I want to jump j- just right into talking about everybody's uh, talking about Jamie because, and it's, it's slightly not, I guess, what you would think about the first thing people want to talk about, but I'm, but I'm always interested. Since Hugo slash Loco, which, by the way, is Loco Chanel's the greatest clever drag name ever, um, but since Hugo is technically a mentor, I don't think you go on set believing that you also need to mentor younger actors, but do you ever feel like that's what you're doing in sometimes? Um, I knew that because Max Harwood was still at drama college and had never done anything on film at all, let alone TV or sh- a short movie, you know, I, I, I wanted to gauge what he'd be like. So when I met him and Jonathan Butterall for a, a pre-shoot meeting, Max was so unbelievably well prepared he knew every line of dialogue every lyric every song every dance move and I knew that he was the real deal he was so emotionally present and vulnerable and funny so on the on the first day of shooting which was his first day as well I knew that um rather than being sort of old veteran actor going oh come here Matthew my boy I'll show you the ropes and do this I just thought that by trying to do what I'm used to doing for all these decades, um, that that might help him. And, and if he was missing his key light or hadn't his mark or whatever, I would just say, just move a little bit there or just because of, because of this and show him my iPhone. Um, and that's as much as I did, because I think that um, I learned as much from him. So I, you know, I think that there's a, there's a terrible danger of old actor thinking you can come in and you know stuff because the kids know better than anybody. And I think the quality of young actors around yeah. in the last decade is absolutely astonishing. It's also worth, just, it's 
absolutely worth noting. You have this beautiful centerpiece number, This Was Me, that just, I, it, it starts out just so ebullient and beautiful, and then it just ends up breaking your heart in such a, a, a short, short span of time. And I, it, I just love the shorthand of Hugo's legacy as Loco being told in like this, it, it, through basically camcorder footage. I thought it was very smart. And I think that um, that was Jonathan Buttrell's and the writer's idea. And I think, I think that giving that historical context via a song sung by Holly Johnson, who is, is an AIDS survivor, you know, he's HIV positive, and because he was so, so iconic in the 1980s, it just seemed so, the combination of those, those things was so fitting, and you're, prop, you know, you're, you're hit over the head with it. Mm. And I think that it gives context to the, to the rest of the, the story. And uh, it feels like it anchors it emotionally. And I thought it was a really smart thing to have done. I th I th and I thought they did it brilliantly. And from what I understand, that also, that was new for the film, right? That was not a song originally yeah. in the original West End play, from what I understand. Absolutely, yeah. So I purposely didn't go and see the show in the West End because when I was offered it and accepted the part, um, I thought if I saw the person who's playing it in the West End, there's no chance, I, would just ha I wouldn't have the courage to do it. Mm. So I thought, just, just don't look. So I go, who's that guy? It's always scary because even like, even if you go in saying, okay, I'm not gonna do, I'm not gonna be, that performance there's still those little things that'll creep in your mind because yeah. it's research and actors just thrive on that but with that all that being said though were you at all familiar with the original documentary at all too did you see it before even there was the play i had i had seen the documentary and it was incredibly touching and when i finally on the day that i had to do the, the be in drag jamie knew the boy that it was who's now 26 years old or he was then he came to visit and the, the vulnerability that came out of him that that he just emits was very visceral and i asked him had the success of the west end and the documentary led to a reconciliation with his father which i assumed that it must have done if the father had any sense and he said no which i found you know, he was still very upset and raw about that. And I felt awful for asking him. But I thought, well, if this movie does anything, it, it is so about diversity and the value of inclusion um, that I thought, well, his, the success of it will be his best revenge. Yeah, that real, I mean, I, it's, this is another one of those stories where it does feel like something we've definitely seen before, but the in, the unique twists through Jamie's actual life are what differentiate this from any sort of you know fictionalized version you could tell. And I think that was the the most crushing part is there never really was that that sort of reconciliation. Even when his father saves him from you know almost being beaten to a total pulp, he just sort of walks away, and it's like okay, so yeah. was this more for you than your son? So it's it's authentic. And you know that's that's the most powerful thing of all. Yeah, I mean, it's just it, it. Very rarely does can a musical straddle that line between this big colorful reality, like he has his name and lights, and you know the tables are lighting up in his classroom, and then the movie ends on yeah. this really beautiful sort of subdued note. 
like even in just the dress that Jamie chooses to go to prom in, it's just this beautiful sort of statement of he finds uh, himself. And Max Harwood just nails the part, I think. Absolutely brilliant. Amazing. Oh, Max is amazing. Uh, this, well, yeah, just no false notes in this cast at all, but Max really does hold this together, especially considering how, uh, that he's still in school, as you had told us. I, I also find it's interesting too, because, you know, there are so many, not so many, there are only so many famous films that are very popular out there that deal with the ideas of drag queens or Priscilla Queen of the Desert, for instance. And for as people may be familiar with the performance style, and especially with, with, with RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, people just watch that like it's, yeah. like it's water. But the idea that it's not just about the look, it's an attitude. And you have, right. to, you have to be able to kind of both present yourself as this, not necessarily subdued, but I'm one person here and another person there. What's that kind of dichotomy like when you're bringing it to the screen? Well, it's great that you brought up RuPaul's Drag Race because I'd never seen drag in my life. And um, I binge watched 11 series in three weeks of RuPaul. And the common denominator the story of all the drag queens, the rejection and isolation that they experience socially and most acutely and painfully, for the most part, in their families, was something that I thought, wow, they have to be so tough to survive it and also vulnerable at the same time and multitask and multi-talented. So my respect for them you know, went through the roof and I, I was very inspired and put in touch and contact with a British drag artist who's pretty avant-garde called David Hoyle, um, who Jonathan Buttrell set me up to meet on many occasions and went to see him perform. And because we're the same age, so he's been through all that stuff of, you know, the AIDS pandemic and the Stonewall, all, all of those big historic events, the vulnerability and just his, the suffering that he's been through is something that I did my very best to try and bring to playing this part. So how was the drag experience altogether? Like how long, how long did it take you to get into all of that? Have you been in drag, Mike? No, but I'm open to the possibility. Matthew, have you been in drag? Not to that extent. I've definitely done stuff where you had to wear a dress and so on, but not like, not makeup and wigs and everything yeah. now. Took um, Guy Commons, a brilliant, uh, and Nadia Stacey uh, makeup design. They spent two hours having to paint my old face to try and make it look like, you know. <laughs> and then an amazing Mrs. Thatcher-like Buffon wig. And Guy Speranza did a fantastic costume, you know, with a double, 36 double D bra and hips and spanks and, you know, you're tucked and hidden away and trust so that on those days when I was in drag, it's a 14 to 16 hour shooting day, uh, you have to take sips of liquid through a straw and hope that your camel-like bladder is going to survive because it's, <laughs> there's no short way out of it. You, you just can't go, to the, you can't go to the john at all. But the, but the most excruciating part is the heels, that I have no idea how any woman could spend 2,000 bucks on a pair of Jimmy Choo heels to be tortured is beyond my comprehension. But um, they look great. So minus the heels, would you say this basically prepared you for your Loki experience? Oh, Loki was a, Loki was a, that, that was a breeze, literally, with wind machines compared to, um, 
compared to being in drag. No makeup for a start. Well, maybe I'll know what the, the heels feel like soon. I was asked my shoe size. I was told I was getting something sent for the film and asked my shoe size. So I imagine I'm getting some, some ruby studded heels or something like that sent to me in the mail soon. Right. Well, Matthew, I think that just may be an official reason for me to be jealous. Sorry, Mike. All right. I can send you one. I can wear the other. and Perfect, perfect group photo. It's just, you know, that's the teamwork. If we can walk together in one pair of heels. Do you have the same shoe size? Probably not. I'm an 11. 10 and a half, yeah. Well, you could squeeze them. True, true. Very much the, the pain is beauty motto. For as much as the film, you know, for people who don't know the story, never seen the show, they could go in for the first time and think, they think that you're just going to sit and champion Jamie the whole time. And of course you do. But it, it, it does come to the point where the idea is, I mean, look, I never thought he was putting himself in front of other people. But he's learning a lot about himself on all sides of, of, the, of the matter here. And I'm wondering where the outcome of the film maybe changed your view of what you were trying to help portray after you knew what the outcome would be. That's far too deep and intellectual for somebody as dumb as me. I never think ahead like okay. that. You know, Mike brought up earlier, though, you know, the, the, the difference between wearing heels or this and bring up the whole Loki thing. And I think it's funny though, because for as much work as you've done, there's now a generation of people that are going to mm. search you out and everything you've done just because Loki's the first thing they've seen you in or remember seeing you in. And yeah. the point of, of our show here at Overdue Rentals is talking about films that maybe were really big at one point, maybe they weren't big at one point, but like nobody talks about them anymore. And look, I went through, I've, I've known most of your whole filmography my entire life. We had maybe some what, what people would consider you know, upper echelon stuff like L.A. Story, Gosford Park, the player on there. I'm a massive Dennis Potter freak. I could have sat and talked about karaoke probably for three hours if I could. Um, you know, it was actually funny. I was looking through the list and I almost forgot. I almost forgot it existed. I know it's a short, but not only was Franz Kafka's It's a Wonderful Life so brilliant, but I didn't even realize yeah. till now that Peter Capaldi wrote and directed that. Yeah. And won an Oscar for it. Yeah that Steve Martin gave him. Wow, okay, so how does it feel to be the epicenter of everything, Mr. Grant? Uh, I'm sure yeah, no one's asked well, you. The, the common denominator of uh, Loki and Jamie is that in both jobs, I wear tights. <laughs> and my father said to me before he died, and before he knew that I could earn a living as an actor, he said, do you really think that you want to earn, try and earn your living wearing tights and makeup for the rest wow. of your life? And I said, Dad, you know, there are very few parts that require makeup and you never have to wear tights, you know, maybe if you're in a Shakespeare play, maybe. Well, you know, he obviously knew something that I didn't because both these parts that you're talking about, I'm in tights and makeup. Well, the, the interesting thing though, is that the, the film we decided to focus on is Warlock because I wanted to go something for maybe a little more fun. And the idea, there's two ideas behind it. A, I think that was, American audiences first introduction to you maybe because we're as big as with Nail and I is yep. and you know is talked about constantly American audiences aren't especially at that time not going to see it as much as something like Warlock nobody saw it I definitely saw it <laughs> but well but that's I, the, the other thing though is this nail appeared in two movie houses from what I understand is David Tree's original script was meant to be more about the idea of a witch from the past kind of still being persecuted in the future. And so that, that idea of persecution fit in with everybody's talking about Jamie, I thought, which is where I thought it was a good transition to end up talking about Warlock. But when you signed on, yeah. was the script the version that you signed on for or was it different? 
it was the script that I signed on for and uh, they'd wanted Sean Connery and he turned it down and hence the Scottish accent became the thing that stayed in. Then they offered it to Michael Douglas and he turned mm. it down. I don't know who else, you know, this is, the, this is the way of actors' lives. And then Withnail had opened in the Carnegie Cinema in New York, one, one movie theater and one movie theater in LA. And I think Steve Miner, the d director saw that and he said, well, why don't we audition this guy because he'll be as cheap as chips mm and maybe can do a Scottish accent. And you know, so that's what they did. All right. That's, that's how, I mean, that's how it's gonna land for a lot of people, I guess. But, yeah. you know, did it, did it, whether or not you wanna say enough people didn't see it when it came out. And for I, I didn't realize yeah. this though, because to me, it's a 1991 film, but I guess it came out in Europe in 89 and we didn't get it for two years later. But right. was there any type of feedback from the more worldwide audiences that led into other things at all or no? I then got a part in Henry and June, the Henry Miller Unease and End story that Phil Kaufman directed with um, Fred Warden, Uma Thurman, and Maria de Medaris and Kevin Spacey. And then I got a whole a bunch of things, Hudson Hawk and The Player and Age of Innocence and Dracula, that sort of, that happened and sort of Hollywood moment then. Yep. But Warlock was my first trip to America and my first experience of making a movie in Los Angeles and Boston. So what was like the first stark difference that you noticed between like the American film scene versus the European film scene? Money. Money. <laughs> you, you, have, you have something called a craft table, which we still don't have, where you have just, it's like a kid's birthday party of stuff. You know, gallon-sized things of Häagen-Dazs ice cream and cookies and fruit and smoothies and all this stuff, and people can just grade all day long there. In England, you know, in the in those days, used to get a sandwich about four o'clock. You know, the, the sides were curled up like that at the edge because they'd been made at eleven o'clock in the morning, and that was it. So that was the biggest thing that I couldn't get over, and just the size of everything in LA was, you know, the size of budgets, the size of cars, the size of food portions, just everything, and I, I couldn't get over that. I, when I was driving around for the first week that I was there, um, and because LA, the, the construction is made out of board and wood, I thought these were sets going up on uh, corners of streets. I didn't realize those were houses because in Europe, houses are built of bricks. So that was a big surprise. You know, I don't know if it's true or not also, and I don't know how privy you were to be to this information anyway, but I, I think I read that when it was you and Julian Sands cast. Originally, they were actually thinking of having you play the other roles. Was that the case at all? Do you know? I was never told that, but maybe Julian was told that and chose you know, the title role. No, no, that's... Julian and Laurie Singer were cast already by the time they, they came to me. Were you ever considered to be in the sequels for Warlock? Because they, you know this was apparently no. fabulous. Uh, uh, oh, really? No. Yeah. No, never, never approached, never heard anything. I heard nothing. Oh, that's a shame. I mean, the warlock got to, you know, come back through magic. Obviously, Giles could probably have some, there's an explanation in there somewhere. I bet they regret it now. <laughs> they definitely are, you're right. Well, let's just say we didn't come here to talk to you about warlock too. And not just because you're not in it, but also, you know. Okay. Clearly the superior warlock. But was it would have been something that if it was offered that you think you would have entered into or you think that maybe you know this that was this is the kind of one and done thing for me i don't want to do a series um 
it was not something that was even talked about. So, um, and it didn't happen. It wasn't as though the movie was, I don't think the movie came out and then the next thing they made the sequel yeah. and then the, the third one. Um, I think there was a gap as far as I know. I, I don't know. I've never seen the other two. Neither have I, honestly, <laughs> because you're not okay. in it. <laughs> I just know they exist. That's, that's basically it. Like this is, whenever someone mentions Warlock, this is the one I think of partially because of that stark poster where it's just Julian Sands standing there looking vicious. And then it's that big shadow that's cast. They had a different poster here with a fur coat and fly and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't as stark and graphic as the one that you've got. It looked more like a horror movie poster. Oh, it is technically people would think of it as a horror movie, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's got the supernatural element to it, but it, it is, it is, I mean, it's not, it's all, it's more fun, first of all. Um, yeah. But, you know, looking at it on the page, did what the ultimate outcome also look like what you expected it to be? Well, the producer, Arnold Copelson, had just won an Oscar for producing Platoon, which had been a massive hit. And he was so, he died a couple of years ago and I absolutely loved him. And I, I felt that he would market it and, you know, they, they would describe what the special effects were going to be. And as I'd never done any of that before, it was all, you know, I was sort of new kid on the block in the sweetie shop. I didn't, you know, every, everything was a surprise, all of it. So I didn't really, you know, in retrospect, I didn't have an expectation of, of how it was going to come out. But, you know, certainly what they do in CGI is just absolute magic to me. It's funny because watching the film, this was actually my first time watching the film was for right. this podcast. Like I had lived with that image of the poster in my head as a kid. And, you know, it wasn't like you could just stream the movie without your parents having to rent it for you. It was like, well, if your parents want to watch Warlock, sure, you can watch Warlock. If not, eh, watch Total Recall instead. Yeah. But it was funny because watching this movie, it's not a one for one like story equivalency, but this almost felt like a more adult version of Hocus Pocus. I've never seen Hocus Pocus. Oh, wow. Well, clearly because you were in Warlock, so you don't need to. Carry on riffing. Yeah, I mean, Hocus Pocus is, it, it, and Warlock are basically, if you boil it down, it's just ancient witchcraft in the modern 90s. And in yeah. Hocus Pocus, it's sort of a more comedic one with Bed Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Kathy and Jimmy sort of going around to eat children's souls and become immortal. Okay, and so Mike, which which part am I playing, Bette Midler or Sarah Jessica or Kathy Najimi? Actually, you're playing a mix between the young teenage boy hero and the black cat, because there's a black cat called Thackeray Binks, who's the spirit of this kid that they imprisoned in a cat right, right. before they were about to be hung. And okay. he comes back in, mod in the modern day to sort of help the kids fight the witches. So right. put those two characters together, give it a weather vane, and a Scottish accent, and that's that's the basic template that you get to then flesh out in this film to such great lengths. Okay. Let's be on. Let's be honest, though. I mean, if it, if it, if it were up to a drag artist, you'd be Bette Midler. Oh, yeah. come on. Another, but that's the thing. You know, when you look back at a film like Warlock, you know, I think in some ways, and maybe you think people think I'm crazy for even saying this. I almost think it was ahead of its time because as an as fish out of water story, it didn't play into it too much. Yes, there were a few jokes here and there, but they just went with the story mm -hmm. and then kept moving. They didn't want to sit on 
traditional tropes of that time. At least that's the way I think about it. It's three decades ago, so <laughs> I guess that's sort of that's sort of odd how that works. You know, you put all this work into a film, especially in that period, because promotional art and VHS art were just so iconic that people have all these memories of movies they didn't even see because yeah. of that art. And yeah. it's like you put all this work into this and these really funny gags, and and you and Laurie Singer have this great chemistry, and you and Julian Sands obviously had this great hero villain dichotomy. And then it boils down to, oh yeah, I remember that poster. Well, I, what I do remember is on the first day of shooting, which was in Boston in the Salem set. Um, and I can remember thinking with this hair extensions and this coyote skin coat and this sort of grizzly beard and everything. I thought if I walk out there and they start laughing, I'm absolutely done for. So I Schwarzenegger my brain into thinking, you know, get just, just uh, Sylvester Stallone hormones out of you, boy, and just, you know, walk as tall as you can and hope that they don't laugh. And I think they didn't laugh because it was about minus 75 degrees. So, but that is the strongest memory I have of shooting Warlock, just the terror of the first day of thinking, is this crew of 120 macho New Yorkers going to burst out laughing when they see the skinny Englishman coming out here trying to be a tough guy. Yeah, he's our hero. <laughs> totally. I'm just going to hang at the craft service table here and uh, just watch with delight. Who knew that 30 years later I'd be in tights, you know, <laughs> with the Loki winds coming at old classic. And that beautiful moment where you're like, obviously it's all pretend on set, but watching it in, in the show where you're like creating this gigantic illusion and just this big hero moment a warlock again basically yeah yeah i love that does it make you yearn though for like because again you know opening the movie and kind of end of the movie is really all the time you get to spend with julian sands does it make you yearn for yeah. wanting to work with people more in the future on different projects or does it not even matter to you just like this is the project got to move on to the next one? Oh yeah i i think that's you know it's it's like I think if, of, of making a movie in terms of like a holiday romance that you have such an intense experience with people and you're away from home, usually on a different location, you get emotionally intimate and you get to know people on a fast track and then you may never see them again for 10, 20, 15, you know, years. And so if you can have a friendship that that's survives the intensity of making a movie, that, that's a bonus. But um, yeah, there's, there's always a longing that you think, God, if only you could do that again or work with those people again. So, yeah, that's the nature of it. But the advantage is that if somebody drives you absolutely crackers and up the wall, you know that there's a finite amount of time. So after three, four, five months at most, you're never going to have to see them again. There's always that. That's... Now, if, if you want to omit names, I understand, but can you give us an example of the crackers treatment? Uh, put it this way, the shooting of Hudson Hawk was a pretty <laughs> traumatic thing because what um, Dan Waters and Michael Lehman, who had just come off the success of Heathers and, you know, a great indie movie, and then they were taken up by the Joel Silver, Bruce Willis <sighs> mega machine, um, it felt like they were kind of, they were blown and battered about. And, so the script that we finally ended up shooting 
was like a Crayola color of, you know, rewrites and things that didn't bear a huge amount of resemblance to the script that we initially all signed up for. So, you know, that was, it was a kind of multiple car crash. But, you know, who knows, you know, 34 years, two years later, whatever, um, I read and I get social media stuff from people saying, oh, I saw it on TV last night. I thought this movie was great. You know, yeah. you don't, you just have no idea. I was, a, I, I had a feeling you were going to say that and I, I will not say why, but that, that definitely tracks. It's interesting to hear you say though, that, uh, you know, you see, you see it as like this, you know, short vacation. So you know that if it's not going to work out, you have it's going to be over soon. Because a lot there's there's so yeah. many other actors out there or producers, directors. It doesn't have to necessarily be actors who get so caught up in the moment that then they'll drag it on and they'll go to the press and complain about it and it'll become big stories and and kind of go nowhere. Do you feel that maybe there's a majority of people who are just kind of too anxious and too you know, kind of balled up with their nerves to kind of be in the business? Uh, probably. And I think that, you know, there's maybe with the exception of Tom Cruise, there's no career that just is a, is a constant upward trajectory. So you know that I think the thing to avoid is that you get a reputation where you're like Faye Dunaway, where nobody will work with you because, I mean, I don't know this person, but by reputation, you know, because she's a brilliantly talented actor I admired for so many years. But, you know, when somebody gets a reputation where they are unemployable, then that, that's, not, that's not good. Now, obviously, with the breadth of your resume, you know, you have your With Nail and Eyes, you have Warlock, you even have Spice World mixed in there. And then more recently, you've had a role on Doctor Who, a role yeah. in Star Wars, and now a role in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, have you, do you have a preference over which of those realms you work in? And were you reticent to even get into these big, you know, franchises? No reticence whatsoever, because, you know, when you, when you go in essentially as a, a kind of genuinely character supporting part actor, you, you there's no responsibility on it. So, for instance, when I was in Logan, um, Hugh Jackman had been doing that role for decades and he had to get up at two o'clock in the morning and eat six times a day and special meals and he had to work out all the time and get all the responsibility on his shoulders. Whereas I had to go in there and I had no muscles whatsoever and just had to go and be a bad guy, you know, with you know, megalomaniac brain cells. So it's a whole different thing. I've never been in, I've never been in a situation where I've had that kind of responsibility. So it means that you can, I suppose the advantage is that you can duck and dive in that, you know, I've, as you said, I managed to be in Doctor Who and Game of Thrones and Downton Abbey, then Loki and, you know, it's, it's the variety of it is what is attractive and exciting to do when you're not asked to do something that's exactly the same as what you've done before. Having said that, if I could have been in all nine Star Wars movies, Yes, I would have signed up immediately in 1977. Well, good news. There's a tool called CGI where we can not only turn you into 1977 Richard E. Grant, but okay. we could totally give you, we, we could make you do backflips with lightsabers and sparklers. Sign me up. You heard that here first, folks. It is now going to be the Richard E. Grant cut of the Star Wars universe. I'll settle for oh, classic Loki and alligator.com for <laughs> now. 
oh, that is that is definitely the the spinoff that needs to happen. I just, agree. Yeah, two episodes because, and just commanding. old classic Loki is the only one that can speak alligator. Yeah. So, you know, perfect. Uh, is there any sort of whisperings of you at least returning for the next season? No, not, not, that I've, not that I've heard. But I mean, the fact that he is the Dr. Doolittle animal um, interpreter seems to me such a gift for a scriptwriter. I don't know how they could resist doing that. It's, it's, it's interesting, too, because I wonder if there are differences between, you know, again, we weren't making episodic television like that back then, uh, you know, in, in uh, between the late 70s up until even maybe 15, 20 years ago. But it seems that in these things, even though they can be quick, fun, you do get the option, you do get the opportunity to actually stretch your acting legs a little more. It's not just jumping in. Logan may be something that's more just jumping in like you're talking about, but then when you get to something like Loki, it's like yeah. you really get to actually play with a character as opposed to just showing up and saying, this is what I am. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I also think that, that when you go into a big franchise like Logan or um, into Loki, it's, you know that your, your contribution is so tiny compared to everything that's going on that it's, it's like being a new person at school because they'd already done four episodes before I got there. So there is the advantage of being like the new kid at school you, you, you know, you, you kind of have leeway or people are glad to see new blood as opposed to somebody that's been doing the same thing for you know, day in, day out, months, months, years, decades, whatever. So there's a great advantage to that. I can tell you firsthand, I got to the end of that episode. It goes into the like the, the, uh, the post-credit sequence where they introduce you and the other Lokis. Yeah. I freaked out in the middle of my living room, like 1230 at night. I'm like, wait is that and then there's sort of the, the credits like special guest appearance by Richard E. Grant it's like yes like I totally forgot you were there you were coming in and it was just this like it's you're one of these actors where it's just nice to see it's nice to see your name in a cast list but then to just see you appear out of nowhere is is always like a treat because you just have this legacy of excitement and these different things that you've picked up on your on, in your career Thank you, Mike. I'd like you to be my agent, please. Perfect. Um, I only work for 10% and... Done deal. Yes. Done deal. Don't and, say and, anymore. And tea. I like tea. Sign here. Sign here. <laughs> now, if Mike, if Mike was your agent, though, and he came up to you and said, they're going to start rebooting Warlock, we want you to have a role in it, would you be there for it? Yes, I've, I've already signed the contract. It's right here. Yeah, it's right next to my signature. It's, uh, yeah. the, the whole thing was conditional upon me coming on as an agent. There's Absolutely. a Warlock reboot that it's total, it's a Warlock reboot in the Star Wars universe. Completely, yeah. I'm no Hudson Hawk, though. No. I don't, hey, I'm Sorry, you folks. can always bring something back and make it better. You know, they, they don't always just remake things that are classic. True. I wonder how many people really thought of Roger Corman's Little Shop of Horrors before they saw the musical. Or decide to remake Hitchcock's Psycho. Ooh. Now, that would be, that would be interesting if you don't do the shot-by-shot -shot remake, because then you can... Maybe yeah. go a little more towards the book. Maybe do it in a different sort of spin because that's well. Maybe 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 both of you could help me remember now because I remember when it came out, and of course thinking all the same things. And I don't remember hearing Richard Linkletter say anything of this site of this type. But now when you look it up, you there's claims that he said that he did it specifically because as he was becoming a hotter and hotter commodity, 
They wanted him to do all these things and he wanted to see how ridiculous he can get and they'll say yes to it. Gus Van Sant, sorry. sorry. This is why I'm your agent. Yes, Professor. I was worrying that I had had a brain aneurysm at that moment when he started saying he was a letter. But yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I'm the one with the brain problem then because <laughs> I got the wrong name. Yeah. Sort of circling back to everybody's talking about Jamie. Uh, what are your feelings of the fact that this is uh, this was originally intended for a theatrical release? It is made it is adapted from a theatrical experience, and now it is going to be. I know in America it's going to be on Amazon Prime. I don't know if that's internationally as well. It is, yeah, worldwide, seventeenth of September. Obviously, because it's because of the musical numbers, um, and I also think that you experience a movie with a lot of other people, especially a movie that is as celebratory and inclusive and diverse as this one is, it is, I think, a great pity that it's not in, in movie houses. But by the same time, we're in a unique you know, circumstance where, because of COVID, and who knows whether we're going to lock down again. Yeah. So, so I understand financially why they've done it. But I know that there are many screenings that are happening all over the place. And I think that Gay Pride in London, and I think in New York, and I think there's been screenings in San Francisco. Yeah, I would love to have it to have been in, in movies, but if more people get to see it, and then, you know, it's not impossible that something then gets released when it is safe for everybody to go back into movie theaters en masse. Yeah, I have no idea. I'm not on the business side of it. It does feel like it could be a repertory hit in the making just because of the the... I don't want to say cult, the audience surrounding the play, like the love for the yeah. play might actually help it endure in, in yeah. better times. I also think that, you know, just the experience of seeing a movie, you just feel it in a movie theater in a way that, you know, it's like seeing a Bond movie on your TV screen or on your smartphone. It's not the same as when you're sitting there with a popcorn and there's, you know, a thousand or other people breathing around you. Yeah. That experience. Well, now that you've mentioned that, has there we're, we're, since uh you know obviously there's there's certain franchises that a lot of European actors get approached for, was there any point you were approached to be in a Bond film like maybe as a villain or maybe a, uh maybe as Bond himself? Not yet, Mike. But as you're now my agent of ten percent, I'm counting on you to get us a mega deal to play anything in a Bond. Amazon's got the money. Everybody's okay. talking about Jamie as an Amazon film. Okay. You are my client we're doing this. This is recorded. Yes, this will be this is recording. This is going out into the world. I'm probably going to get a call from Eon Productions and I'll be lucky if I'm here tomorrow. <laughs> okay. Well, till then, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about all, all this stuff. And uh, thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Richard. Stay safe. And this has just been an absolute honor. Please come back. Thank you very much. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to my new client, Richard E. Grant on Overdue. I guess Rundle. I guess I got no co-host now because Mike's going on to be an agent. Uh, well, you know what? I, I I think that now that I've become a, a talent agent by the likes, uh, as the, much like the likes of Swifty Lazar, I will fold Overdue Rentals into this new empire. So now, you you know, it's it, no changes. You just do your thing. And I'm just going to go ahead and make sure we have money for it. Okay, go perfect. Or and whoever you sign on as talent, you know. Oh well, now that I'm Richard's agent, clearly he's going to be on at least once a quarter. We do have. There's so many films you can talk to him about, which is again why people may be wondering why why Warlock. But again, that's the point of this show. Warlock 
would be on TV constantly when I was a kid. I'd see it all the time. It, was, it wasn't like, it wasn't a massive thing when it first came out, but it was like, you, I couldn't avoid it at a certain point. Massive enough like, to get two sequels. Yeah, so no, so it's like, that's the kind of stuff you want to talk about because who the hell's going to talk about Warlock anymore? We got to, certain people are not going to like it. A lot of people complained about the special effects then, to be honest with you, and they're dated oh. now, but it's not meant, it's, what, what I like about Warlock is that it is fun to a point, but just like I said earlier, it's clever enough. And it yes, plays, yeah. from what I understand, David Tui was trying to make a different film when he first wrote it, and they, they made him change it. Um, but it still has those inklings of his work in there. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Sean Connery at the top of the show because I cannot believe that they originally wanted Sean Connery for this. Like, folks, put it right up there with Morpheus from The Matrix, Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, and Dumbledore from Harry Potter. Another one that Sean Connery turned down. I think this, I mean, I think that Richard is the perfect kind of person for this type of role, too. And that's because that's the, again, that's that balance that we're talking about. It's got to be a little silly, but it's got to be serious. And Connery wouldn't have been able to do that. I'm sorry. He would have just been serious. Yeah. And that's it. The the levity that needs to be there underneath it without being too silly is something that Richard can bring out into anything. And I'm not saying he's not the only one who could do it, but especially at the time, it it made a lot of sense that this was his role. Yeah. And also... Again, as you said, even though it it may not be like his choice of film to talk about, it was still nice that Richard E. Grant, just the legend that he is, talked to us about Warlock. And we also talked about a lot of other really cool stuff, like obviously his gig on Loki and, and, you know, the fact that he didn't know about craft service tables until this film. And, you know, just, again, fantastic guest. And it's like, even if we just talked about Warlock for five minutes, getting to talk to Richard E. Grant was an absolute treat. Yeah, I mean, absolute legend. You know, I, I there's he's he's definitely the type of person that there are so many people who know him, know him by name, know him by sight. There are others who need a little bit. You know, it's like, oh, I've seen that person before. You know, or they know who he is, but they don't know his name. You know, traditional what people call a character actor who are really actually the best actors that there are. Um, but because he's got so much attention on him right now for people who are just obsessed with Marvel and Loki, it is the perfect time to bring back a lot of classics and a lot of great work that he's done. And, and, you know, if we can be part of that, that's great. But the fact that he's here to talk to us about it and, uh, and just kind of reminisce about anything is, is, is absolutely great. And also just, fantastic performance as Loco Chanel slash Hugo in Everybody's Talking About Jamie, which is just such an open-hearted movie. And I re- I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's another, it's another role that in the wrong hands, somebody's going to go way too far into one side with it. Somebody's going to get too campy. Somebody's going to, somebody's going to try and n- not do that. So they're going to go the opposite direction. It's about it's 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 a clever walking the line that you have to do, and not everybody can do it. Yes, and even like just again, I, I mentioned it to him in our conversation, but 
This Was Me, like his big song that was created just for the film, even though he's not singing it, it's another vocalist. Like he and, sings pieces And we should it. clarify for people, he sings like the opening and ending of it. He does, because it's a flashback number. And just, even just him being in that sequence, watching his younger self, the man's, ra- just the man's range really does show because you just see that. It, it, it's an emotional journey of a song. And for the most part, it's him reacting and watching his younger self and it hits like a sledgehammer and I teared up by the end of it. And then just watching him like in drag and watching him be him like out of drag, just it, this movie was, uh, had some really impressive performances. And I think Max Harwood is the name yeah. of our, our, our lead who I didn't know he was still in school. And just, again, young performer, well, yeah. it's really hard to cast a young performer as hard as it is to cast a venerable performer like Richard E. Grant to play a role like Hugo. Those two roles are probably the hardest ones you have to cast here because they really are at the center of it. Well, I mean, look, I, I, th- I think I, I also, I mean, there are a lot of people in this movie who I know very well. And I know a lot of their work. And Sharon now I'm Jordan. Yeah, who I've never seen her that cruel before, I don't think. I'm sure she's got something, but I can't remember her being that big of a, I'm sorry, Sharon, bitch. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure she, I would like to think she would take that as a compliment because of how the character is written. But yeah. even being that sort of antagonist, it's not overly, she, she doesn't go overly into villain territory. I think today is just about surprises because again, I had lived with that image of the warlock poster from being a kid. And now I found myself an adult pseudo prequel, pseudo remake, even though it it exists before Hocus Pocus of Hocus Pocus. (laughs) And everybody talking about Jamie is another surprise that I think uh, folks are going to have fun discovering for themselves on Amazon Prime, September 17th. I believe it is a global release, all globally through Prime Video. I believe so, and um, it's something that, you know, I know we were talking about it. I know we talk about this a lot, about the idea of trying to see things in theaters and it was meant to be originally. But I think that this film probably was gonna, is going to get a lot more attention because it's available streaming. True, and I think that it's going, I, I swear it has repertory in its bones because I could see the, I could see the Prince Charles Theater in London having this on like random weekends. Like I, I, that was literally one of the first theaters I could think of. And like, I, I see this sort of being a, a musicals kind of have that really interesting life. Like maybe it's just because Rocky Horror kind of opened the door, but mm. some musicals just have this like repertory reputation where it's I, like, <laughs> I, 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 it's like, all right, I can't, I can't, I can't do repertory reputation. What reputation? <laughs> Repertory repetitions are repetition. I love it. Okay? I love it. That's great. That's great. <laughs> but yeah, it just, it feels like this, this film that the, the play already has a following because maybe because of the documentary. And now it just feels like something that could be its own sort of, even if it is a big hit on prime, I still think it'll be like a cult hit through the years because of, you know, the themes of understanding and just because of the musicality of it. Like I want to, I would love to hear this on theater speakers. It has a great score to it. Mm. like really catchy songs they actually they actually sent me a link to stream the uh, soundtrack the other day and i 
I, I, I it's just, I haven't opened it. Did you get your shoes yet? No. <sighs> I've not gotten the shoes yet. Well, folks, every day, every day I come home going like, I wonder what's going to, when those, they'll be closer to release, I'm sure. Probably. And yeah. I, who knows what they're going to be, you know, who, but like the fact that they asked me for my shoe size makes me feel it's got to be, right? The fact they didn't ask me for my shoe size, but I, I, I actually don't care. It's, you know what? That is not the point. This is not overdue shoe rentals. It's just overdue rentals. And this is the show where we get people like Richard E. Grant to come in and talk about Warlock and talk about everybody's talking about Jamie and talk about classic Loki and Loki Gator coming to Disney+. Plus. I will make it happen, Richard. All right. What's happening first then in, in your agent world? That or... Uh, Richard E. Grant, the next Bond film. I think we're going to have to move forward with classic Loki and Loki Gator while the iron is hot because uh, there, we still don't know when the process for the next Bond film is going to get going. But <laughs> I'm Bond sure... We, uh, that's, that's something that weighs on my mind on a daily basis, but I will... You know, that's... It, it will happen. We know that this stuff will happen just as we know we will head to another episode of Overdue Rentals. But till we get to another episode of Overdue Rentals, Mike, where can people find us? Ah, well, you know, everybody's talking about Overdue Rentals, at least if you're in the know. But just in case you've just stopped in, hello, welcome. You can find us on Twitter at Rentals, Rentals Overdue, on Facebook and TikTok at Overdue Rentals, on Instagram at Overdue Rentals Show. And should you want to send us some notes, your favorite song, your new song lyrics to the Loki Gator and classic Loki theme tune, or just, you know, a recommendation of what we should cover next, head over to OverdueRentals at gmail.com. Also, do not forget to rate and subscribe. And don't forget, on September 17th, to go check out Amazon Prime. Everybody's talking about Jamie. And then, of course, don't forget to cross Warlock off your Overdue Rentals list. Bye 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 bye